we're looking again at another one of Jesus' parables. And the parable we'll be looking at this morning is in Matthew chapter 22. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 22. I don't know if you've noticed recently, but promoting products in the marketplace as authentic has become very serious business today. You'll notice the word and its variants being used to sell just about everything. Some ad campaigns urge you to choose authenticity or to be authentic. Um, I didn't know this, but uh, there is what they call authentic food court flavors for foods. You know, food courts in malls, they have flavoring, authentic flavoring for food courts, and I'm not sure I'd be too interested in that. When you visit the state of Maryland, they say that even the fun is authentic. And if you need to buy some furniture, there's a furniture place on the, on the web that says matter-of-factly or matter-of-factly affirms authenticity, period. Well, consumers and buyers, it seems, wait more, want more than just the availability of a product or a good price or even superb quality. They want authenticity or the genuine thing, something bona fide, the real deal, and don't we all? The authentic gospel is what humanity needs today. But incessant attacks have been made on it that has left many wondering whether the Christian experience is authentic at all. Now, of course, Satan would have it so, because salvation by faith or through faith sets the sinner free, and the devil wants humanity to be anything but free in Jesus. There are cries from outside the church and even from within that have been effective in leading sincere Christians toward a legalistic experience. So what is legalism? What is legalism? Legalism, just simply defined, is putting or using God's law for purposes for which it was never intended. That's simply it. Legalism is using God's law for purposes for which it was never intended. Satan is antinomian or against God's law. But do we know that he is the biggest legalist in the universe because he misuses the law and seeks to deceive people in regards to it. On one hand, he discovers, discourages believers by suggesting that God's law cannot be kept, and then he attacks any well-meaning Christian who seeks to obey it. Legalism is alive and well in Christian community today. There are several ideas related to legalism. One is uh, that those who place legalism is placing tradition around the law uh, to gain power over others. Now, the Jews in the days of Jesus were uh, classic at doing that. The Sabbath, for example, had built up all these man-made regulations around the, the express command of God, and so if you weren't obeying their tradition, their, uh, their version of how you should keep the law, then uh, they had power over you and people were afraid to step outside of uh, those requirements. They did the same thing with tithing. You remember Jesus said, look, uh, you know, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe anise, mint, and cumin, but you, you neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and, and love. These you ought to do, but not leave the other undone. Yes, you ought to tithe, but don't be so minute and so detailed as to forgetting uh, the, the most important things you see. 
So that's one form of legalism. Another form, a second form of legalism, is based upon the idea that society is driven by performance, um, and so we sometimes have trouble switching gears when it comes to salvation. Because the Bible teaches that we are judged by, the, by what we think and we do, many think that in order to be saved, they must, by their own efforts, keep the law. And then there is a third form of legalism, widespread legalism, that is not generally recognized as such. And that is gaining assurance by achieving a minimum standard. Gaining assurance by achieving a minimum standard. This, this approach claims to be full gospel because it emphasizes God's free grace and gracious gift of justification and forgiveness to a believer. However, it gets mixed up with the idea uh, with other ideas, and it skews the true concept of the gospel. Here are, those, here are those ideas, and we're going to come back to them to review them here shortly. Number one, not only is our human nature tainted by sin, so that we are constantly in need of the, the, the covering atonement of Jesus, which is true, but beyond this, they say, human depravity is so extreme that we commit sins all of the time, even when we don't want to, or involuntarily. The second idea that uh, is in keeping with this third area of legalism is while the converted life should manifest victory over sin, and that's what we call the process of justification by faith and growth, full obedience, however, to God's law is impossible. And this view has a couple of corollaries. So I'll, we'll do number three. And here it is, moral transformation is limited. That's the other idea. Moral transformation is limited. All that matters is the justifying work of Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you have spiritual victories or failures. All that matters is Jesus' justifying work for you. And then lastly, a judgment of the works of the Christian believer according to the standard of God's law is irrelevant because works have nothing to do with their salvation. They are judged as being saved in Jesus. And so, here are the four points, these strange ideas that are being promoted that confuse our theology and our understanding regarding authentic, the authentic, everlasting gospel of the Scriptures. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, in, we have a, a story, Jesus teaches a story, and it's the parable of the wedding garment. And the story reveals to us the authentic gospel and offers it to anyone freely who will take it. So, we're going to take a look at it here and understand that we can enjoy a genuine Christian walk and avoid the trappings of legalism, as understood by this broader definition, this third point that I shared with you here, that, uh, it's a, that it's, it is a t attained, um, uh, uh, we attain uh, this idea, this uh, gaining of assurance by achieving a minimum standard. So, let's look at the parable together. Let's start with verse 2. Jesus is speaking, and He says, "'The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son.'" So, the marriages back then were arranged, and the king is arranging a, a, a wedding for his son, and uh, this is a reference uh, to the spiritual union of humanity, God's church, with the, the Godhead or the divinity, uh, the atonement of heaven with 
earth with God and His beloved children. This is what this story, the marriage of the king's son, represents, the union of God with His children, the atonement at one minute. Number three, verse three rather. And He sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now, in Eastern culture, wedding festivities would go on for several days, pretty big deal, and being the time had arrived, all who were invited and who had accepted the invitation were reminded to attend. That's what uh, this is referring to here. The invited guests in this parable, those who are invited to attend uh, the wedding, at this time is none other than the children of Israel, God's people, who were privileged to be the keepers of the faith of God, the oracles of God. And so the call comes to them to attend the wedding festivities, to be seated at the feast of the gospel and enjoy the benefits of salvation. The Old Testament prophets, of course, made the, made the call to God's people over and over and over again. And it was also made to Judah, to those in Jerusalem and around that area by John the Baptist and his disciples, and then again by Jesus and his disciples. And, uh, and then when Jesus sent out the 12, and when Jesus sent out the 70, they sent out the call to God's people, but the Bible says they were not willing to come. They were not willing to come. They weren't prepared to accept the conditions of receiving salvation, which basically is giving up of self and, uh, and embracing the future prospects of glory that God had desired for His people. Verse 4, And again He sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. So again, God calls out His messengers, sends out His messengers with the invitation to Israel to come to the wedding with a more urgent appeal. What's the more urgent appeal? The dinner is what? The dinner's ready. The ox and the fatted cattle has been killed. Things are all ready right now, prepared. Come and get it. And verse 5, but they made light of it, and they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. They reacted basically indifferently to the call of the apostles, to the calls of Jesus. They made light of the reminder and they went back to what they were doing. They kept on sacrificing their animals. They went back to the multitude of restrictions that they had placed around God's law. They returned as if the Messiah had never been in their midst. Verse 6, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Unfortunately, indifference wasn't their only curse. Israel's leaders sought to mistreat and kill God's servant. And according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, the Bible tells us that there was a great persecution among the Christians in Jerusalem, which led many to leave. And when they left, they took the gospel with them and the gospel invitation to the, then, the corners of the then known world. They pled with people and the gospel was taken and it was through persecution that this occurred. Verse 7, but when the king heard about it, about how they had treated spitefully and killed his servants, when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. The burning of the city, no doubt, is a reference to uh, what would come, the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 70. Let's read verses 8 to 10. 
And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. You know, it's interesting, just in a few verses, Jesus describes or illustrates the history of his people. He first talks about Israel in the time of the Old Testament. Then he talks about Israel again at the time of John the Baptist and the time when he was living and his disciples. And then he progresses beyond the destruction of Jerusalem where God would send or give the prerogatives of the gospel to the church. And that they would, the church would go out and the gospel would be proclaimed. And both the church would be comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And through this vessel, for the third time, sent an invitation to everyone, both Jew and Greek, both bond or free, both male and female, to accept the everlasting gospel. And the gospel has been going to the world ever since. The invitation has been shared with many. The wedding hall is filling up with guests. And today, the church is comprised of men and women from varying backgrounds and varying cultures. However, however, we're told in verse 10, Jesus says that in the church are both good and what else? Bad. This is the third time in Jesus' parables that he mentions the good and the bad. We have the parable of the wheat and the tares. They look just like each other until the time of the harvest. Then there's the parable of the dragnet where the gospel net is cast and fish are gathered in, but both good and bad exist. And here, the wedding hall is filled with guests, both good, both good and bad. And verse 11 illustrates what it means when he says good and bad are both in the church. But when the king came in to see the guests, he made, saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Jesus comes to the crux of the parable right here. And this is where we're going to linger for the remainder of our time. The king comes to the wedding hall and he sees the guests gathered there. And as he's scanning the crowd of people in the church, he notices there's someone in there not wearing something or wearing something he shouldn't be wearing. And that's clear by the measures taken by the king to have this man eventually escorted out of the festivities, bound hand and foot to be thrown out into the streets where there are no lights and just darkness where the sound of crying and the grating of teeth can be heard. Now, according to the time and the culture, if all the guests were properly attired, they would have brought honor to the king and to the occasion, for after all, it was the wedding, the marriage of the king's son. But on this particular occasion, a person is inappropriately dressed, bringing dishonor upon the host and possibly, possibly introducing some type of discordant note into the festivities. It's the same kind of way God has team colors to be worn by his followers. Did you know that? You have team colors. You have a uniform to wear, not, not a visible uniform, so to speak. We're all just kind of lined up wearing the same thing, but we have team colors to wear. God has a uniform that ought to be worn. And so we come to the question in the parable, what is the garment then to be worn? If we want to be welcomed into this marriage and remain during the course of the wedding and sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what is the wedding garment that is to be worn? 
It is none other, and I'm quoting here now from Christ Object Lessons, page 310, it is none other than the pure, spotless character that Christ's true followers will possess. Now, the robe is to be worn to the wedding feast, not fig leaves uh, as our first parents made by themselves, for themselves, not garments of our own devising to cover our sins and transgressions, but Jesus' robe of righteousness. This covering Christ places upon all and every repenting, believing soul. He counseled the church of Laodicea, and He counsels you and I, Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy of me white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. That's the white raiment. What the king in this story is offering to his guests is not just an authentic robe, but interwoven in the robe is an authentic experience also. It's not just a robe to look good and a covering to make you feel right, but it's an authentic experience also. I want to throw a a quote up on the screen for you. This is from Christ Object Lessons, page 312. What does it mean to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Notice, when we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with His heart. The will is merged with His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. And then the next slide. This is what it means. Notice, this is what it means to be clothed with the garments of His righteousness. Then, as the Lord looks on us, He sees not the fig leaf garment, doesn't see the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but His own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. What a gift. Now, with this in mind, with this in mind, this wonderful gift, let's come back to those previous ideas that have gotten all mixed up and skewed in, this, in the authentic, everlasting gospel. So here it is. Firstly, is human depravity, and we'll put it up on the screen here for you, is human depravity so domineering that we sin involuntarily? The answer to that question is what, friends? answer to that question is no. The parable of the wedding garment teaches us that the righteousness of Christ by faith doesn't mean freedom from, uh, doesn't mean freedom uh, to continue to sin, but freedom from sin, you see, to keep God's law. It's a life of obedience. But according to the Bible, all human beings are affected by sin. There's no doubt about that. The fallen, sinful body and evil propensities remain with us until Jesus comes back again. Any moral good that we have is from outside ourselves. It is from who? It is from God. Uh, In the Bible, words for sin can refer to either the fallen nature, where David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, or where Paul wrote in Romans 7, 17, sin that dwells in me. He's refer- they're referring to our sinful natures, or sin can also mean specific infractions against God's law. 1 John 3, 4, John said, sin is the what? Transgression, transgression of the law. So sin, as a violation of God's law, can be actions or they can even be thoughts. They can be deliberate, They could be inadvertent or even unintentional, but they are never, ever automatic. Never. Not all human imperfection as well as should be regarded as sin. 
Human life is filled with all kinds of non-sinful imperfections due to our limitations in skill and knowledge and memory, physical condition, and so on. The bottom line is that human depravity, as pervasive as it is, is not a valid argument for justifying sin. Never. And so that's, that's number one. Number two, here's the question. Is complete obedience to God impossible? Is it legalism to emphasize obedience to God? And we just need to understand that when God converts people by His grace, He simply brings them into harmony with His law of love by progressively pouring into our hearts the love of God through His Spirit. That's what the parable of the wedding garment teaches us. For Christians, committing sin is not inevitable. Jude 24 reminds us, now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling. First John 2, 1, I write unto you, John said, that ye sin not. John recognizes the possibility of not committing sin, or it would make no sense for him to encourage people to abstain from it. Now, keep in mind that we're talking here about uh, maturation of character, or, uh, and not, rather, and not sinless perfection of nature. No one receives that until Jesus comes back again, you see. So that's number two. Number three, number three, is Christ's justifying work all that we need as Christians? Is it all that we need? Now, the parable of the wedding garment also answered that for us too, didn't it? The terms justify uh, or justification that are used in the Bible are legal metaphors, but just because salvation's transactions are described through these legal metaphors or count, accounting metaphors does not mean that the transactions themselves are unreal. Jesus really took upon Himself our sin, and He really offers to us His righteousness for our sin. Lastly, number four, with regard to a judgment, is a judgment for believers unnecessary? Does a pre-Adventist investigative judgment negate salvation through faith? Now, you recall in the parable that we read, the king offered the wedding garment as a what, friends? As a gift. It was a gift. Then he came and he investigated the guests, checked in on the guests, and found that there was one without the garment. The investigative judgment, the pre-advent judgment, does not remove the basis of our salvation, but looks to see who's met the conditions of salvation. For God's people, the judgment is for their benefit, as an essential and concluding part of their salvation. It vindicates them as ones who have truly loyal to God and the rightful heirs to the kingdom of God. The judgment demonstrates that God is just when He justifies the right people, the right people, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. For those who think that they must go or can go on continually sinning until Jesus comes, salvation and accountability to God for victory over sin are mutually exclusive. And so, they retain assurance of salvation, but they deny the judgment and including the time prophecies of Daniel chapter 7 through 9 that support a pre-advent judgment, a judgment that takes place before Jesus comes back, you see. 
But we know that the true gospel, the authentic gospel, and the judgment are inextricably linked, don't we? Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, John said, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel to them that preach, yeah, everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. You know, if you throw out the judgment and accountability to God's law, it is not a sign of higher faith and gospel assurance. It is simply systematic of a perversion of the authentic gospel. That's really what it is. So let's summarize. We're going to put all the notes up on the, on the board here for you, on the screen. Let's summarize. The parable of the wedding garment teaches us several things. Number one, everyone is invited to the wedding. How many people? Everyone is invited. Doesn't matter what, what nationality, what uh, social class or what, it doesn't matter. Everyone is invited to the wedding. Number two, the wedding represents the spiritual union of humanity with divinity. That is happening right now. That's why when we get to heaven, there's going to be a wedding feast. The feast occurs after the wedding has occurred. So that's going to take place right now. That's taking place right now. God is bringing together a people, you see, who will be faithful and loyal and obedient to Him. Number three, upon accepting the king's invitation, the king provides a garment to be worn, and that garment is a gift. The gift. Number four, the garment represents the righteousness of Christ, both imputed and imparted to the believer. Number five, this pure robe of righteousness is not given to cover unconfessed sins or neglected duties, but to cover the penitent, humble child of God who has confessed and forsaken sin and is leading a life of obedience to Christ by His grace. Number six, without the garment, we cannot be saved. Without the garment, we cannot be saved. And number seven, linked with the free gift of righteousness is the investigation of the king that the king undertakes to determine if everyone has met the conditions for entrance into the wedding. This investigation does not remove the basis of our salvation, which is faith in Jesus Christ, but seeks to vindicate the wearers of this righteousness along with the king who has freely offered it to them. And Jesus offers to each one of us His robe of righteousness, His uniform, His team colors. What He's offering to you and to me is, is amazing. Let's not sell the righteousness of Jesus short. Christ wants each one of us to have the real deal, an authentic Christian experience that's offered as a free gift to all and each of every one of us. Do you need forgiveness? Do you need cleansing? Do you need courage? Do you need victory? Do you need supernatural power? Do you need assurance and hope? Well, then Jesus holds out to you His robe of righteousness that you can accept simply by faith. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.